Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here in Orlando at Microsoft Ignite, and I've got the pleasure of sitting with Erez Barak. Uh, Erez is group manager for Azure AI. Erez, welcome to the Twimmel AI podcast. Thank you, thank you. Great to be here. Great to be here with you, Sam. I'm super excited about this conversation. We will be diving into a topic that is generating a lot of excitement in the industry, and that is uh, AutoML uh, and, and the automation of the data science process. Uh, but before we dig into that, I'd love to hear how you got started working in, in ML and AI. It's a great question because I've been working with data for quite a while. And I think roughly about uh, five to 10 years ago, it became apparent that the next chapter for anyone working with data has to weave itself through the AI world. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the world of opportunity with AI is really, really only limited by the amount of data you have, the uniqueness of the data you have, and the access you have to data. Mm -hmm. um, and once you're able to connect those two worlds, a lot of things like predictions, new insights, new directions sort of uh, come out of the woodwork. So uh -huh. seeing that opportunity, imagining that potential has naturally led me to work with AI. I was lucky enough to join the Azure AI group. And th there's really three focal areas in, within that group. One of them is machine learning. How do we enable data scientists of all skills to operate through the machine learning lifecycle, starting from the data, to the training, to registering the models, to putting them in productions and, and managing them, a process we call MLOps. So just looking at that end-to-end -end and understanding how we enable others to really go through that process in a responsible, trusted, and a known way has been a super exciting journey so far. And so did you, do you come at this primarily from a, a data science perspective, a research perspective, an engineering perspective? Well, I think... Or none of the above or all of the above? You know, I'm actually <laughs> going to go with all of the above. I think you'd be <laughs> remiss to think that, well, if you're going to hit it from a data science perspective and you're trying to build a product, yeah, um, really looking to build the right set of products for people to use as they go through their AI journey you'd probably miss out on an aspect of it. If you're just thinking about the engineering perspective, you'll probably end up with great infra that doesn't align with any of the data science. Yeah. So you really got to think between the two worlds and how one empowers the other. You really got to figure out where most data scientists of all skills need the help, want the help, are looking for tools and products and services on Azure to help them out. And I think that's the part I find most compelling, sort of figuring that out and then really going deep where you landed, right? Because if we end up uh, building a new SDK, we're going to spend a whole lot of time with our data science customers, our data science internal teams, and figure out, well, how should that SDK look like? Mm -hmm. But if you're building something like AutoML that's targeted not only at the deeper data scientists, but also the deeper-rooted data professionals, you're going to spend some time with them and understand not only what they need, but also how that applies to the world of data science. And what were you working on before uh, Azure AI? So before Azure AI, in Microsoft, I worked for a team called Share Data, 
which really created a set of data platforms for our internal teams. And prior to joining Microsoft, I worked in the marketing automation space, a company called Optify. Um, and again, the, the unique assets we were able to bring to the table as part of Optify in the world of marketing automations were always data-based. We're always sort of looking at the data assets the marketers had and said, oh, what else can we get out of it? Machine learning wasn't as prevalent at the time, but you could track back to a lot of what we did at that time and how machine learning would have helped if it was used on such a general basis. Yeah, one of the first uh, machine learning use cases that I worked with were uh, with folks that were doing, um, trying to do like lead scoring and likelihood to buy, propensity to buy types of use cases. I mean, that's been going on for a really long time. So we're on a podcast, so you can't see me smiling, but uh, <laughs> we did a lot of uh, work around building low lead scoring. Okay. And heuristics and manual heuristics and sort of general heuristics and heuristics that the customer could customize. And today you've seen that to really evolve to a place where there's a lot of machine learning behind. I mean, it's perfect for machine learning, right? You got all this data. It's fresh. It's coming new. It has insights that are really hard to find out. Once you start slicing and dicing it by regions or by size of customers, it gets even more interesting. So the, all the makings for having machine learning really make it shine. Yeah, you are getting pretty excited, I think. Oh, no, 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 it's a sweet spot there, yes. <laughs> nice, nice. We want to dive into talking about AutoML. I mean, this is, um, yeah, probably for... The level of excitement that uh, and demand for uh, AutoML and um, enthusiasm uh, that folks have for the topic, uh, not to mention the amount of confusion that there is for the topic, I probably not covered it nearly uh, enough on the podcast. You know, certainly, you know, when I think of when I think of AutoML, you know, there's uh, you know a long kind of academic history uh, behind uh, the the technical approaches that um, that drive it uh, but it was really popularized uh, for many uh, you know with Google's cloud auto ml in 2018 and like before that they had this New York Times you know they had this PR win that was like a New York Times article talking about how you know AI was going to create itself and I think that contributed a lot to for lack of a better term in the space. Um, but then we see it, you know, all over the place. There are other um, approaches more focused on kind of citizen data science. Um, you know, I'd love to, you know, just start with how you define AutoML and, you know, is, is you know, what your take on it as a space and, you know, its role and importance, that kind of thing. You know, I think I can... I really relate to many of the things you touched on. So maybe I'll start, uh, and this is true for many things we do in Azure AI, but definitely for AutoML, on your point around academic roots. Microsoft has this division called MSR, Microsoft Research, and it's really a set of researchers who look into bleeding-edge topics and drive the world of research in different areas. And that is when we first got in our team, introduced to AutoML. So they've been doing research, a, a, a subset of that team has been doing research around the AutoML area for um, quite a few years. Uh, they've been looking at it, they've been thinking, well, uh, you know, it started, yes, I've heard the sentence, AI making AI, da, 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 there's a <laughs> thing there, but uh, you know, when you start drilling into it, like what does it mean? And 
Um, it means, to be honest, it means a lot of things to many people. It's quite mm-hmm. overused. Although I'll be quite frank. There's no one standard industry standard definition that says, hmm, here's what AutoML is. I can tell you what it is for us. I can tell you what it is for our customers. I can tell you where we're seeing it make a ton of impact. And it comes to using machine learning capabilities in order to help you, being the data scientist, create machine capabilities in a more efficient, in a more accurate, in a more um, structured fashion. My reaction to that is that it's super high level yeah. and it it you know, kind of leaves the door open for all of you know this broad spectrum of definitions that uh, you just talked about. Uh, like for example, not to kind of over-index on what Google's been doing, but like Cloud AutoML Vision, uh, when it first came out, was you know a way for folks to do a, a vision cognitive services, but use some of their own data to tune it, right? Which um, is a lot different. In fact, they they caught a lot of flack from the the academic AutoML community because they totally redefined what that community had been working for, you know, for many years and. Um, you know, started kind of creating the the confusion. How do we, maybe a a first question is, do you see it as kind of, you know, being the kind of a broad spectrum of things or is is it, um, you know, how do we even get to a definition that kind of separates the personalized, you know, cognitive services trained with my own data versus, you know, this other set of things? Uh, I don't know if that's a question. Or... No, no. I, well, I, no, I think as you see it as more of that general sense. So yeah. I would say um, probably not. I see it as a much more concrete set of capabilities that adhere to a well-known process Okay, that actually is agreed upon across the industry. When you build a model, what do you do? You get data. You featureize that data. Once the features are in place, you choose a learner. You choose an algorithm. You train that algorithm with the data, creating a model. At that point, you want to assess the, evaluate the model, make sure it's accurate. And you want to get some understanding to what's, what are the underlying features that have most affected the model. And you want to make sure, in addition to that, that you can explain that model is not biased. You can explain that model um, is really fair towards all aspects of what it's looking at. That's a well-known process. I think there's no argument around that in the sort of the machine learning field. That, that's sort of the end-to-end. AutoML allows automating that process. So at its purest, you feed AutoML the data, and you get the rest for free, if you may. Okay, that, that would be sort of where we're heading, where we want to be. And I think that's at the heart of AutoML. So where does the confusion start? I could claim that what we or others do for custom vision follows that path, and it does. I can also claim that some of what we do for custom vision is automated. And you know, then the, the, there's a short uh, sort of hop to say, well, therefore it is AutoML. But I think that misses the general point of what we're trying to do with AutoML. Yeah. Custom vision is a great example where AutoML can be leveraged. But AutoML can be leveraged wherever that end-to-end process happens in machine learning. Nice. I like it. I like it. Uh, So maybe we can kind of walk through 
that end-to-end process and talk about some of the key areas where uh, automation is applied to uh, contribute to AutoML. So I'd like to start with um, featureization. And, you know, at the end of the day, we want an accurate model. A lot of that accuracy, a lot of the insights we can get, the predictions we can get, and the output we can get from any model is really hinged on how effective your featureization is. So, you know, many times you hear that, well, 80% of the time on data science is spent on um, um, data. A lot of the time is... Can I put a pin on... Do you know where that number comes from? Oh, of course. Everyone says it and everyone everyone repeats it. It's a a (laughs) self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, I'm going to say 79% of the time, just to be sure. (laughs) But uh, I I think it's more of an urban legend at that point. I don't think there is... You know, I am seeing customers who do spend that kind of percentage of Uh time. I am seeing experiments we run that take that amount of time. Generalizing that number is just... uh, It's too fun not to do. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> no, I'm wondering. I was wondering if there's. Uh, I was thinking about this recently, and I'm wondering if there's some, you know, institute for data science that's been tracking this number over time. It'd be interesting to see how it changes over time. I think is the the broader curiosity. It would. I should go figure that out. I think that's an interesting <laughs> one. You gotta be interested. Yeah. So, <laughs> so sorry. <Go> ahead. <laughs> no, important. But the, so, but you know, you you can easily, and anyone who's built builds a model can quickly see the effect of featureization on the output. Now, a lot of what's done when building features can be automated. I would even venture to say that a, um, a part of it can be easily automated. But then uh, naturally... What are some examples? Some examples are like, I want to take two columns and bring them together into one. I want to change a date format to better align with the rest of my columns. You know what, even an easy one, I'd like to enhance my data with some public holiday data when I do my sales forecasting, because that's really going to make it more accurate. So it's more a data enhancement, but you definitely want to build features into your data to do that. So getting that right is key. Now start thinking of data sets that have many rows, but more importantly, have many columns. Okay, And then, then the problem gets harder and harder. You want to try a lot more options. There's a lot more ways of featureizing the data. Some are more effective than others. Like, um, you know, we recently in uh, AutoML have uh, incorporated uh, the BERT model into our auto-featureization capability. Now, that allows us to take text data we use for classification and quickly featureize it. It helps us featureize it in a way that requires less input data to come in for the model to be accurate. I think that's a great example of sort of how deep and how far that can go. You mentioned that, you know, getting getting that featureization right is key. To what extent is it an algorithmic methodological challenge versus a computational challenge, if you can even separate these two? Meaning, you know, do we, um, you know, there's this trade-off between like, you know, we've got kind of uh, this catalog of, you know, recipes, you know, like combining columns and, uh, you know, binning things and whatever that we can just throw at a, a data set that looks like it might fit, you know, versus more intelligent or selective application of techniques based on, you know, nuances, you know, whether predefined or learned uh, about the data. So, so, so it extends on a few dimensions. Okay. I would say... 
There are techniques. Some require more compute than others. Some are easier to get done. Some require sort of a deeper integration with existing models, like I mentioned the BERT before, to be effective. But that's only one dimension. The other dimension is the fit of the data into a specific learner. So, you know, we don't call it experiments and machine learning for nothing. You experiment. Right. You try. Okay? Nobody really knows exactly which features would affect the model in a proper way, would drive accuracy. So there's a lot of iteration and experimentation being done. Now think of this place where you have a lot of data, creating a lot of features, and you want to try multiple learners, multiple algorithms, if you may. And that becomes quickly quite a mundane process that automating can really, really help with. And then add on top of that, we're seeing more and more models creating, created with just more and more features. The more features you have, the more nuanced you can get about describing your data. The more nuanced the model can get about predicting what's going to happen next. So we're now seeing models with millions and billions of features coming out. Now, AutoML is not yet to prepare the, prepared to deal with the billion feature model, but we see that dimension extend. So extend compute, one. Extend the number of uh, um, iterations you would have. Extend to the number of features you have. Now you got a problem that's quickly going to be referred to as mundane, hard to do, repetitive, doesn't really require a lot of imagination. Automation just sounds perfect for that. So that's why sort of one of the things we went after in the past, I'd say, 6 to 12 months is how we get featureization to a place where you do a lot of auto-featureization. I'm trying to parse whether the extent to which you got to you know, whether you agree with this kind of dichotomy that I presented, like there's, you've got this, you know, this mundane problem that if, uh, you know, a, a human data scientist was doing it would be, you know, just, you know, extremely iterative. And there's certainly one way of automating is just, uh, you know, do that iteration a lot quicker because a machine can do that. Another way of uh, automating is, uh, apply, you know, let's call it, uh, you know, more intelligent approaches to navigating that feature space or that, you know, iteration space um, and identifying, you know, through algorithmic techniques, you know, what are likely to be the the right combinations of features as opposed to just kind of throwing the kitchen sink at it and, you know, putting that in a bunch of loops. And certainly that's, you know, that's not a dichotomy, right? You do a bit of both. Um, can you elaborate on on that kind of trade-off or the relationship between those two approaches? Is that even the right way to think about it? Or is that the wrong way to think about it? Or I think it's a, definitely a way to think about it. Like if you, if you think about it, it's a, no, I'm just thinking through that lens yeah. for a second. So I think you describe um, sort of the brute force approach yeah, to it yeah, on yeah. one side. Right. The other side is how nuanced can you get about it. Yeah. So what we know is you can get quite nuanced. There's things that are known to work, things that are not known to work. Right. Things that work with a certain type of data set that don't work with another. Right. Things that work with a certain type of Model. data set combined with a learner that don't work with others. So as we build AutoML, I talked about machine learning used to help with machine learning, we train a model to say, okay, in this kind of event, you might want to try this kind of combination first. Because if you're, I talked about the number of features, brute force is not an option. So we got to get a lot more nuanced about it. So what AutoML does is given those 
um, conditions, if you may, or those features for that model, it helps just sort of the it helps shape the right set of experiments before others, thus allowing you to get to a more accurate model faster. So I think that's one aspect of it. I think another aspect which you may have touched on, and I think is really important throughout AutoML, but definitely in featureization, is while people are excited about that, the next thing you're going to hear is, but I want to see what you did. And you got to show what kind of features you used. Yeah. And quickly follows is, I want to change feature 950 out of the thousand features you gave me. And I want to add two more features at the end because I think they're important. That's where my innovation as a data scientist comes into play. So you got to, and AutoML allows you to do that, be able to open up that aspect and say, here's what I've come up with. Would you like to customize? Would you like to add? Would you like to remove? Because that's where you as a data scientist shine and are able to innovate. Uh, so we started with featureization. Yeah. Next step is learner slash model selection. Um, I, I think it's probably the best next step to talk about. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I, I think there's a lot of configuration that goes into this, like how many iterations do I want to do, yeah. for instance? How accurate do I want to get? What defines accuracy? But those are more sort of manual parameters. We ask the user to add to it. But when automation again comes into play is learner selection. So. What happens, uh, you know, putting AutoML aside, what's going to happen? Build a set of feature, choose a learner. One that I happen to know is really good for this kind of uh, problem and try it out. See how accurate I get. If it doesn't work, but even if it works, you're going to try another. Try another few, try a few options. AutoML, at the heart of it, is what it does. Now, going back to what we talked about in featureization, we don't take a brute force approach. We have a model that's been trained over millions of experiments, sort of knows what would be a good first choice. Given the data, given the type of features, given the type of outcome you want, what do we try first? Because people can't just run an endless number of iterations. It takes time, it takes cost, and sort of takes the, mm, frankly, it takes the, a lot of the ROI out of something you'd expect from AutoML. So you want to get there as fast as possible based on learnings from the past. So what we've automated is that selection. Put in the data, set the number of iterations, or not set them, we have a default number that goes in, and then start using the learners based on the environment you're seeing out there and choosing them out of that from that other model we've trained over time. By the way, that's a place where we really leaned on the outputs, on the outputs we got from MSR. That's a place where they, as they were defining AutoML, as they were researching it, really went deep into and really sort of created assets where then able to leverage a product sort of evolves over time and technology evolves over time. But if I have to pick the most or the deepest rooted area we've looked at from MSR, it's definitely the ability to choose the right learner for the right job with a minimal amount of a compute associated with it, if you may. Mm -hmm. Uh, and what are some of the kind of core contributions of, of that research if you kind of go to the layer deeper than, than, than that? Um, are you asking in the context of choosing a model or in it, general? Yeah, in the context of, of choosing a model. Like, for example, as you described this, uh, what is essentially a learner that's learning which model to use, you know, that 
created a bunch of questions for me around like, okay, you know, how do you represent the, you know, this whole, um, you know, what are the features of that model and uh, what is the structure of that model? And uh, I'm curious if, you know, if that's something that came out of MSR or that was more, um, the you know, came from the productization and then, you know, if, if there are specific things that came out of that MSR research that come to mind as being, uh, you know, pivotal to the way you think about um, about that process. So uh, I recall the first version coming out of MSR wasn't really of the end-to-end product, but at the heart of it was this model that helps you pick learners as it relates to the type size of data you have and the type of target you have. This is where a lot of the research went into. This is where we publish papers around, well, which features matter when you choose that. This is where MSR went and collected a lot of historical data around people running experiments and trained that model. So at the basis, at the heart of our earliest versions, we really leaned on MSR to get that model in place. And, you know, we then added the workflow to it, the auto-featurization I talked about, some other aspects we'll talk about in a minute. But at the heart of it, they did all that research to understand, well, first train that model, just, right. just you know, grabbing the data, getting the right set of experiments. what does that model look like? Is that model, uh, is it... Uh, you know, a, a single model? Is it relatively simple? Is it fairly complex? It is, is it some kind of ensemble? Like, I'll oversimplify a little bit, yeah. but <laughs> it profiles your data. So it takes a profile of your data. It profiles your features. It takes a profile of your features. It looks at the kind of outcome you want to achieve. Am I doing time series forecasting here? I'm doing classification. I'm doing regression. That really matters. And then based on those features picks the first learner to go after. Then what it does is uses the result of that first iteration, which included all the features I'm talking about, but also now includes, hey, I also tried learner X and I got this result and that helps it choose the next one. So what happens is you look at the base data you have, but you constantly have additional features that show you well, what have I tried and what were the results? And then the next learner gets picked based on that. And that gets you in a place where the more you iterate, the closer you get to that learner that gives you a more accurate um, um, accurate result. So then is it kind of at its core, is it a, you know, it's, I'm hearing elements of both, you know, supervised learning, you have a bunch of uh, experiments and, you know, the models that were chosen uh, ultimately you know, but also elements of something, you know, more like, you know, simple reinforcement learning, contextual bandits, explore, exploit kind of things as well. Uh, it definitely does both. I, I would, if I could just sort of touch on one point, reinforcement learning as it's defined, I wouldn't say we're doing reinforcement learning there. Saying that, we're definitely sort of every time we have an iteration going or, you know, every X times we have that, we do fine tune the training of the model to learn as it runs more and more. So I think reinforced learning is a lot more sort of um, 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 uh, reactive. Um, But taking that as an analogy, we do sort of continuously collect more training data and then retrain the model that helps us choose better and better over time. Interesting, interesting. So we've talked about a couple of these uh, aspects of the process, feature engineering, model selection. Um, You know, one of the... 
Uh, next is once you've identified the model, like tuning hyperparameters um, and optimization, do you consider that uh, its own step or is that kind of uh, you know, a thing that you're doing all along or both? I consider it part of that Uber process I talked about earlier. You know, we're just delving into starting to use deep learning learners within AutoML. So that's where we're also going to automate the um, parameter selection, hyperparameter selection. A lot of the learners we have today are classic machine learning, if you may. So that's where hyperparameter tuning is not as uh, um, applicable. But seeing that every time we see an opportunity like that, I think I mentioned earlier in our forecasting uh, capabilities, we're now adding um, deep learning models in order to make the forecasting more accurate, that's where that tuning will also be automated. Then if you yeah, think actually about- Actually, elaborate, we, I think we chatted about that uh, oh. pre, oh, sorry, yeah, yeah. pre-interview. Um, but you mentioned uh, that you're, you're doing some stuff with TCN and Arima uh, around time series forecasting. Uh, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so I talked about this um, process of choosing a learner. Now, you also have to consider what is your uh, possible set of learners you can choose from? And what we've added recently are um, sort of deep learning models or um, networks that actually are used within that process. So TCN and Arima are quite useful when doing time series forecasting, really drive the accuracy based on the data you have. So we've now embedded those capabilities within our forecasting capability. So within, that, when you say within forecasting, meaning you, uh, a forecasting service that you're offering um, as opposed to within... No, let auto- me clarify. Yeah. <laughs> There's three core use cases we support as part of AutoML. One for classification, the other for regression, and the third for time series forecasting. So when I refer to that, I was referring more to that use case within AutoML. Got it. Got it. So in other words, uh, in the context of that forecasting use case, as opposed to building a system that is general and applying it to time series and using you know more generalized models, you're using now TCN and Arima as kind of core to that, which are you know long proven models for time series forecast. Yeah, I would argue they're also a bit generalized, but in the context of forecasting. <laughs> so, but but it's a, but but let me tell you how we're thinking about it. There's generally applicable models. Yeah. Now we'll see in different use cases, like in forecasting, there are generally applicable models for that area that are really useful in that area. That's sort of the current state we're in right now. And we want to add a lot more sort of known, um, uh, generally applicable uh, models to each area. In addition to that, sort of where we're heading, and as I see this moving forward, more and more customers will want to add their own custom model. Right. We've done forecasting for our manufacturing. We've tuned it to a place where it's just amazing for what we do, because we know a lot more about our business than anyone else. We'd like to put that in the mix every time your AutoML considers the best option. I think we're going to see, I'm already seeing a lot of that, sort of the bring your own model, which makes sense. Yeah, it's right? an interesting extension to kind of bring your own data, which was the yeah. you know one of the first yeah. frontiers here. No, I think it's very like, I mean, you're coming in to a world now, it's not, uh, hey, there's no data science here. There's a lot of data science going on. So I'm the right. data scientist. I've worked on this model for the past, you name it, weeks. 
months, years. And now this AutoML thing is really going to help me be better. I don't think that's a claim we even want to make. I don't think that's a claim that's fair to make. The whole idea is find the user where they are. You have a custom model? Sure, let's plug that in. It's going to be considered with the rest in a fair and visible way. Maybe with the auto-featurization, it even goes and becomes more accurate. Maybe you'll find out something else you want to tune your model. Maybe you have five of those models, and you're not sure which one is best. You plug in all five. I think that's very much sort of where we're heading, plugging into an existing process that's already deep and rich wherever we land. The three areas that we've talked about, again, featureization, model selection, and parameter to, or optimization, um, are, I think, kind of what we you know tend to think of as kind of the core of AutoML. Do you also see it playing in kind of that, you know, the tail end of that process, like the the deployment, you know, after the model's deployed, uh, there are certainly opportunities to automate there. A lot of that uh, is very much related to, you know, DevOps and, and that kind of thing. But are there elements of that, you know, that are more like, what we're talking about here? I think there's two steps. Be- two if you steps don't mind, I'll that? talk about two steps before that. Okay. Okay. I think there's the evaluation of the model. Well, how accurate is it, right? I split. Uh, but again, you get into this world of iterations, right? Yeah. So that's where automation is really helpful. Okay. That's one. Yep. The other is sort of the interpretation of the model. Mm. That's where automation really helps as well. So now, especially when I did a bunch of automation, I now want to make sure, well, which features really did affect this thing? Explain them to me and work that into your automated processes. Did your process provide a fair set of data for my model to learn from? Does it represent all um, all genders probably? Does it represent all races probably? Does it represent all aspects of my problem? You choose them in a fair way. Where do you see imbalance? So I think automating those pieces are, you know, right before we jump into deployment, I think it's really mandatory when you do AutoML to give that full picture. Otherwise, you're sort of um, creating the right set of tools, but I don't feel, or I feel without doing that, you're sort of falling a bit short of providing everyone the right checks and balances to look at the work they're doing. So I, when I generalize the AutoML process, I definitely include that. And back to your question on does deployment, uh, do I see deployment playing there? Uh, you know what? To be honest, I'm not sure. Sam, I, I think we're definitely the way we evaluate success is we look at the models deployed with AutoML or via AutoML or that were created via AutoML and are not deployed. We looked at their inferences, we look at their scoring, and we provide that view to the customer to assess the real value of their model. Automation there, I think... You know, if I have to guess, yes, automation will stretch there. Do I see it today? Can I call it out today? <laughs> Not just yet. Well, I mean, a lot of uh, a lot of conversation around this uh, idea of you know deploying a model out into production, and you know, we've thankfully, um, I think, convinced people that you you know it's not just like deploy once and you know you're not thinking about it anymore you have to uh, monitor the performance of that model and there's a, a limited lifespan for you know most of the models that we're putting in production and then kind of the next 
thing that folks get excited about is, well, you know, I can just see when my model falls out of tolerance and then like auto retrain. It's one of these, everyone's talking about it, you know, few are actually doing it. Um, it, it sounds like you're kind of in agreement with that. Like we're kind of not there yet at scale or, or no. So I think, you know, uh, we often refer to that world as the world of ML ops. Yeah. Uh, machine learning uh, oper- operations yeah. in a more snappy way. I think there is a lot of automation there. If yeah. you look at automation you do with DevOps for just code. I mean, right. forget machine learning code, but code, let alone models, is very much automation we need. Right. I do think there are like two separate loops that have clear interface points, right. like deployed models, like maybe um, uh, data about data drift, but right. they sort of move in different cycles at different speeds. Yeah. So I'm, uh, maybe, you know, I got to, you know, we're learning more about this, but I suspect that iteration of training, improving accuracy, getting to a model where the data science team says, oh, this one's great, let's use that. I suspect that's one cycle, and frankly, that's where we've been hyper-focused on automating with AutoML. There's naturally another cycle of that operations that we're sort of looking at the automation opportunities with ML ops. Yeah. Do they combine into one automation cycle? Mm, I'm not sure. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, yeah. To, I today, don't know either, but it, yeah. It, it does strike me that, like, when, you know, for example, the the decision, you know, do I kind of you know, retrain from scratch? Do I incrementally retrain? Do I start all the way over? Maybe that decision could be driven by, you know, some patterns or characteristics in the nature of the drift and the performance shift that, you know, a model could be applied to. And and then we start to you know, there are aspects of, you know, what we're thinking about and talking about is auto ML that are applied to that like DevOpsy part. Who knows? No, I'd say who knows. And I think, you know, <laughs> listening to you, you know, I'm taking a note to myself that uh, while we sort of have a bit of a fixed mindset on the definition, we definitely need to break through some of that and open up and see, well, what is it that we're hearing from the real world that should shape what we automate, how we automate, under which umbrella we put it? Uh, yeah. I think, and you will know this, this moving so fast and evolving so fast. <laughs> Uh, right. I think we're just at the you know first step of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, a, a couple of quick points that I wanted to ask about. Another couple areas that are generating excitement under this umbrella are neural architecture search and neural evolution and, and kind of techniques like that. Uh, doing anything in those domains? Again, we're incorporating some of those neural architectures into AutoML today. I talked about our deeper roots with MSR and sort of how they got us that first model. Our MSR team is very much looking deeper into those areas. They're not things that have formulated just yet, but the feeling is that uh, sort of the, the same concepts we put into AutoML or automated machine learning can be used there, can be automated there. I, I'm being a little vague because it is a little vague for us, but the feeling is that there is something there. And, uh, you know, we're lucky enough to have the MSR arm that when there's a feeling there's something there, some research starts to pan out and the thinking of different ideas there. But 
to be frank, I don't have much to share at that point in terms of more specifics yeah, yet. Yeah. And my guess is, you know, we've been focused on this AutoML as a kind of set of platform capabilities that helps data scientists be more productive. There's a whole other aspect of, you know, Microsoft delivering cognitive services for vision and, you know, other things um, where they're using AutoML internally and where kind of, you know, it's primarily deep learning based. And I've, I'm, can only imagine that they're throwing things like architecture search and yes, things like that yes, at the yeah, problem. Yeah, yeah. So they do happen in many cases. So, you know, I think custom vision is a good example. We don't see the general patterns just yet. And for the ones we do see, sort of the means of automation haven't been put out that yet. So I think it's like if I look at where we were with the AutoML thinking probably a few years back is where that is right now. Meaning, oh, it's interesting. We know there's something there. The question is how we sort of um, further evolve into something more um, specific. Well, Edis, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us about what you're up to. Great conversation and learned a ton. Thank you. Same here. Thanks for your time. And the questions were great. I had a great time. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.